but we did have that identity crisis. We had to explain our sport mm. everywhere we went. Like that term you use, funny or odd. There's something that once it once you grab onto it and try it, and if you connect with the sport, you'll be doing it your entire life. We're gonna go out on the field. We're gonna score as many goals as we can. We're gonna have fun. Oh, Becky, oh, well placed. So I played collegiate soccer in the United States. It's kind of weird to think about, but chances are in hearing that statement, you developed some basic picture in your head of the first 20 plus years of my life. Maybe you have a sense of how I started out in the sport in an organized manner. You have an idea of how I and my parents spent a lot of weekends during my childhood and teenage years. An idea of what my day to day was like even. Maybe you know the names of a couple of my heroes. Mia Hamm and Megan Rapino, Or, you know, what the mothers of friends in my life were like. This basic picture idea comes with identifying with an activity in the mainstream. It's this sort of wild thing where my experiences are not only memeable, but those memes go viral. Or I can go to many parts of the country, and well, because it's soccer, really most parts of the world and know that there are people within two miles of me at any given time who could converse with me about my sport to some degree. Now, what if I told you I was a former curler or a former team handball player? Engaging in a conversation with me becomes very different. That sketch of what my path might have looked like, what my introduction to the sport was, becomes a lot less clear. I mean, are curler moms an identifiable type of person? I don't know. Today, we're talking about the stories of two former athletes who had incredible careers in sports on the fringe. And in diving into these experiences, we ponder some kind of philosophical questions like, what impact does being a part of such a unique activity, misunderstood or not understood at all by so many, what impact does that have on one's identity and sense of community when they're actively participating in that sport or that community and as they transition out of it. So I wasn't just being hypothetical earlier. I actually brought an Olympic curler and an Olympic team handball player onto the show. Matthew Ryan was a member of USA team handball from 1989 to 1996. And he served as a captain of the team in the 96 games in Atlanta. I you know, grew up in Long Island and uh, was fortunate to come out of a high school that uh, really did a wonderful job uh, with its physical education program, offering uh, non-traditional sports to learn. And I grew up uh, playing field hockey, Gaelic football, and team handball in gym. So I was, uh, and I loved it. I loved the athleticism that was associated with the sport. Never thought I was going to be revisiting it once I graduated high school. Ryan went on to play collegiate basketball at UMass Amherst and Long Island University. And it was in his final year at Long Island that, what do you know, handball poked its head back into his life. Uh, but then in walks uh, my senior year into the gym, a recruiter for USA Team Handball, and 
uh, was looking for elite athletes and tapped the shoulder of myself and one of my teammates and uh, wanted to introduce us to the sport of team handball. So they flew us out to Colorado Springs. I remember on my birthday, February 19th, 1989, they made us the anchor of the next uh, quadrennial uh, for the, the U.S. Olympic team. And uh, remember the process of one being where uh, they were trying to field the next Olympic team and uh, there were athletes brought in, the, in from around the country, much like we were, and we would go through NFL combine type testing, running, jumping, throwing, speed, agility, and uh, kept whittling it, you know, these hundreds, if not thousands of uh, athletes down to uh, the full-time resident training team of uh, 30 or 40 athletes. And, um, you know, then our learning curve was accelerated by uh, training three, four times a day, six days a week, and then uh, getting on the road, putting on the USA uniform, and getting our butts kicked all around the world, <laughs> uh, you know, playing, you know, 25 games in 30 days and, you know, uh, or being gone for 60, 90 days and just playing a ridiculous amount of games during that period of time. Uh, it was necessary, basically contradicts everything in terms of, uh, you know, the body and sports and recovery of the muscles. But, um, you know, we needed to get up and running and uh, accelerate our learning curve for not having grown up with this sport as part of our our pipeline of development here in the U.S. So it was a it was a great experience and it was fun learning something new. You know, we were we're athletes. We love to challenge ourselves and tried to be the best we could uh, personally. And then representing uh, the red, white, and blue, uh, tried to represent our team and our country the best we could. Uh, so we knew we had our work cut out for us every single day. We laced up the sneakers and put on the uniform to make ourselves better. There was uh, no time to relax and, until it was all said and done. Maybe kind of just going with where the current took him at first, Ryan soon started to realize that this handball opportunity here at this specific moment in his life could really be a defining period if he was more intentional about it. Yeah, I remember being out there and wondering what I was gonna do next with my life. You know, I was 22, 23 years old and I knew I had some time on my side to try something. And even if I failed, it would be okay. Uh, I had my, my degree. I had opportunities to go back to New York and uh, you know, pursue uh, another pathway of, uh, of a career. Um, but as I uh, got immersed into it, I really loved uh, challenging my body, my mind. They gave us all the resources to be successful, uh, mental, uh, uh, strength and uh, then you know nutritionists, uh, strength and conditioning coaches uh, uh, basically took our raw bodies and uh, made them fine-tuned machines to compete. And that piece, I, abs I absolutely loved it. Uh, I loved being on a, a campus at the Olympic Training Center in Colorado Springs and uh, getting to know the other sports, the other athletes, you know, supporting them and seeing the height of some of their sports uh, hosting national or international tournaments there at the Olympic Training Center. And I'm like, boy, this is this is a fantastic movement. This is a wonderful opportunity that I want to see it through. And, you know, learning something new, you know, there's always that doubt that creeps into your head and the way you overcome it is by working harder. And, you know, sometimes when you're, you're learning something new, like, will I ever get it? And I think it was about eight, nine, ten months into uh, this, you know, three, four times a day of training, six days a week, 
that things seemed to click. And I realized, wow, I think I could be pretty good at this sport. And I can uh, help push my teammates to be better as well. And um, that was sort of the, you know, the epiphany, uh, the, the penultimate moment uh, that I recall that said, I'm in it for the long haul. And, um, you know, I'm going to take it as far as it'll let me go. And uh, as long as my body doesn't quit. So uh, that was one piece I could control is uh, how much in shape I was. And uh, then just relied on the coaching and the professional staff around us to, uh, you know, give us the other, you know, tools needed to be an elite athlete. Now introducing our featured curler. Hello. Hello. Hannah. It's happening. Oh my gosh, it's a miracle. We did it. (laughs) Are you, are you sensing the sentiment of celebration in getting on this call here and swiss helm and i have been trying to have a conversation for almost three months it's been hectic times she's been pretty busy in the past few weeks being on calls with usa curling and um fighting the coronavirus life is pretty good i'm i'm feeling really significantly improved but um yeah this is a tough woman right here and I truly feel honored to have her speak on the show. For Anne Swisshelm, curling came into her life also in a not-so-serious way at first. Actually, in a not-so-unusual way, either. Um, well, I think, like, most 10-year-olds are introduced to sport. It's because your parents have signed you up. <laughs> Growing up in the Midwest, where people go gaga over winter sports because it's snowing and cold for many many months of the year it made curling not exactly a go-to youth sport but you know it's not as out there of an activity to consider putting your child into so uh lucky enough my parents signed me up for uh, a curling a junior curling uh, that happened throughout the winters on sunday afternoons um I was an all-sport kid. Uh, My main sport was basketball, baseball, softball, and um, swimming. So I was pretty much busy every day of the week with morning swim practices, afternoon basketball, or uh, what have you. And uh, Sundays were pretty open. (laughs) So I think uh, knowing that I was a pretty active kid, my parents wanted to give me a little something to do on Sundays, and it was curling. And it was just for fun when I was a kid. I was a very serious basketball and other sport player. Like Ryan, Swiss Helm went on to play a mainstream sport offered at the collegiate level. Softball, in her case. And curling, once just a fun side dish in her life, came back asking for more in her early 20s. It was, you know, perfect timing. Uh, Maybe the stars aligned when I was asked to be on a team and the team performed quite well at its first national championship. And it was something that I didn't even know kind of existed, really. And another coach saw me and said, would you be interested in going to a training camp we're having this summer in Bemidji, Minnesota? (laughs) I was like, a curling training 
I, I said, well, okay, sure. And then all of a sudden, really from there, um, I, uh, I was put on a couple of really great teams over time. And I think it was, uh, two and a half years later, I was at my first Olympic trials. It took a lifetime and overnight is kind of how I look at it. As they ascended the ranks of their respective sports, especially in this period spanning the 90s, these two, wherever they went, carried all that came with the unpopularity, the unfamiliarity of their sport with them. Well, I mean, when I first started playing competitively, I mean, my first Olympic trials were in December of 1997. Uh, very few people in my world outside of curling knew what curling was. Very few people at that time. It was so obscure. I mean, it was so obscure that CBS had the Olympic rights for the 1998 games and they didn't, they chose not to even show the curling. Mm. So it wasn't really on TV until the 2002 Olympics. And kind of leading into that, and as the host nation, it was that then it became something that other people knew about. But we did have that identity crisis. We had to explain our sport mm. everywhere we went on U.S. soil. Uh, it was fun traveling internationally and saying that we were you know, the U.S. national team for Team Handball, and everybody knew who it was, knew what it was. Uh, but here stateside, we found ourselves becoming very articulate in describing what the game is and using other sports to uh, describe it. So it became very proficient at uh, saying it's like soccer with your hands. It's uh, rugby <laughs> right. with the ball skills of water polo and six on six. The boy who plays a little bit small in a volleyball. It's, you know, the, you know, on and on the story is told, but we embraced it as an opportunity to be ambassadors of the sport and um, whoever we came in contact with we knew that we were going to make fans of ours and fans of the sport moving forward. When you have to explain your sport over and over, not to mention when you're a high-level competitor focused on, above all, winning, you begin to fine-tune the very useful talent of not expending energy on what other people think. You know, and I wouldn't say it ever uh, created any frustration with me. Uh, I controlled what I could control. Uh, there was a pathway here. Uh, for success, an opportunity to compete in the Olympic Games, and I didn't lose mm. that focus. I knew with the uh, with the proper attention to detail, effort, and commitment uh, by myself and the rest of the team, we could be very competitive. And uh, we set our goals as team, as a team, as individuals. Uh, we focused on that, and uh, whether people knew the sport or not, uh, really didn't matter. Uh, we uh, created this bond; it was special, and we had some uh, pretty successful. Uh, victories along the way. No doubt all athlete communities are held together by strong bonds, whether it's a singular team or a bigger collective of those who play your sport. But when you're a little more niche, a little more used to people raising an eyebrow at something you love or turning their back on it altogether, the people in that space with you become a special kind of family. Uh, the curling community itself is so amazing. You know, we, the community is a tight one because of the uniqueness of the sport. It is populated with unique characters. Because it is a bit of an obscure sport, right? And like that term you use, funny or odd. 
there's something that once it, once you grab onto it and try it, and if you connect with the sport, you'll be doing it your entire life. Mm -hmm. And it's not just the, the action of the sport itself, but it's the community in which that action is taking place. That is so strong. You know, we know that you don't have to be like us other than the fact that you like curling. You know, there's no rules that say you must be this type of person to excel in this type of environment. And while you don't need to be a specific type of person to excel in these non-traditional sports, the type of people who do find themselves competing at the highest levels in curling and team handball and ultimate frisbee or whatever it may be, they have to brace themselves for what's at times a different elite athlete reality. It may require an attitude shift on their journey to the top. Do you think there's anything different about the Olympic athlete journey uh, and that reality when the sport you're so consumed by and care for so much is so misunderstood or so kind of on the fringes? Do you think that there's a difference between that and like a basketball player? The effort to get there isn't any less, right. and maybe it's even more so, uh, you know, for, you know, some of the obstacles that, uh, you know, the non-traditional sports have to overcome, you know, athletes coming from other sports to uh, be bobsledders, to uh, be, you know, a team handball player or, or some of these other you know, sports. I, I think it does take a, a special athlete mentally, physically to take on such a, a challenge but you, know, you don't have the benefit of you know being a uh, a sport that everybody recognizes with quickly so uh you know depending how you're wired you know if you're you know a a, a self-absorbed kind of athlete uh you're looking for that you know kind of recognition um and making it about yourself then i can see where maybe you would have a struggle with it uh, but with Team Hamble, nobody had any experience. So we say, you know, okay, put your New York State basketball player of the year and, you know, football this of the year. You know, put that aside at the door. Everybody's walking onto this mm. court uh, with a clean slate, and we're going to build this together. And uh, so if, you ha if you're wired that way, it can be a, a, a pretty fun experience. Um, you know, learning in and of itself is fun. And learning something new, like a sport, uh, getting a table uh, with the ability to use your athletic talents uh, and continue to, your career. There's um, there's a lot of wins there, a lot of benefits, and uh, and I certainly value that. But you know, it does become frustrating when uh, you see the potential for the sport, how quickly it could grow, and the lack of resources that are put into mm -hmm. it. That is a challenge. Uh, the rich keep getting richer, as they should. You know, the, the swimmings and track and fields winning their gold medals. And there's a, a reward for those programs uh, financially from these corporations uh, for bringing home those gold medals. And, you know, some of these non-traditional sports just aren't going to get there unless more resources are put into it. But it is uh, it, it caters to everything that we as Americans love athletically, you know, running, jumping, throwing, you know, high-flying, fast-paced action, hitting. It's... It's everything, and uh, we we told our story hundreds, if not thousands, of times, and um, and I think now you know if there's any you know frustration, it's just that um, I wish there was an opportunity that funds were invested into the program to not make that a hurdle for the sport to achieve its its success. After countless hours of training to push themselves, to push their teams, 
acting as ambassadors to push their sport forward in the U.S. The clock struck zero on Swiss Helm and Ryan's elite competitive careers. You know, but you got to look at yourself in the mirror at some point and be honest with yourself. At some point, your body does yes. uh, start to feel the ravages of time and, in particular, gravity. Um, I feel that, you know, those two things combined, time and gravity, they always win. You know, you're being held together a bit by pixie dust and, um, you know, just kind of strength of will and mental fortitude at you know, at a certain point. And that's when you need to, you need to roll it back. You know, what is the uh, long-term uh, viability of competing? Uh, what's the return on the investment of my body into this? And, uh, you know, on the back end, you know, when, when do I start my career? Uh, but when I was involved with it, I never, you know, yeah, I you know, gave up opportunities to be with the family, but I, I got a lot in return. So I, I know, and I know people talk about this as, you know, you're an elite athlete and you're traveling and, you know, sacrifice, sacrifice, sacrifice. You're, it's, uh, it's like you're giving up something. And yes, I suppose, but uh, you're getting a lot in return. Uh, I got friends for life. I got some of the best coaches in the world around me um, to learn from, to now pass that experience on to my child. Uh, there was a lot to be gained by that. And, um, and, at the end of the day, you know, competing in the Olympics, uh, I had an opportunity to bring my family, my community together uh, down there to celebrate this journey. And it was uh, it was incredibly special. And then, you know, that moment of, you know, when is the right time to walk away? And uh, I knew that going into this, you know, back in 1989, uh, that I was going to control my effort and commitment to it, uh, walk away with no regrets. And uh, I did that after our last game. I uh, I given it all to the, the entire program, uh, to our country, you know, to my teammates. I gave it everything, and uh, I had nothing else to prove. Uh, my next, I recognized that my next uh, journey was going to be as a, a father, as a husband, as a colleague uh, for wherever I was going to be employed. And um, yeah, I could have continued my career playing professionally in Europe, but at, at what cost? I would have been in my late 30s and then, you know, trying to start a career. And that just wasn't going to do it for me. So uh, uh, say goodbye. I, um, you know, was thankful for the experiences gained and, uh, and share, you know, some of those experiences, uh, you know, daily uh, with, uh, with, with friends of mine, with family. And, um, you know, it was, it was pretty special. Swiss Helm actually finished up her career not too long ago. I was the oldest member of uh, Team USA in Sochi at age 46. She in part attributes the remarkable longevity of her career to those mainstream sports she participated in growing up. I was able to stay healthy. We had some pretty great support. and I had a pretty great background in from other sports, right? I mean, being a swimmer, being a team player in basketball and softball um i i've been given some pr a pretty decent foundation for uh training even though they might not have existed yet in our sport directly the way swiss helm's career came to an end was not the cherry on top she was hoping for uh, that was you know i'll never be happy with that so um I mean, I, my team was extraordinary. Uh, 11 months prior to Sochi, we're competing for a medal at the World Championships. And it just wasn't our 
championship and it's really frustrating but curling sometimes is a lot like uh the sport of golf right on any given weekend the one of the best players in in the world can miss the cut right the conditions weren't to their liking the putting surface or the fairways and rough and rough just wasn't to their liking and I don't think we ever really quite embraced the ice conditions we faced in Sochi. And if you don't do that, um, if you don't connect with the, the ice conditions kind of right away, it's really, um, it's really a tough event. No, no real athlete or competitor is happy if they don't get to at least you know, touch on some semblance of their, their best performance, mm-hmm. uh, you know, at any championship, um, you'd, you'd be a little, a little unhappy. Of course. But I mean, listeners, if there's anything we've learned from this show in the past year, it's that more often than not, how a final competition turns out doesn't define the career, especially this one that featured multiple Olympic and world championship appearances. I mean, I had announced my retirement prior to the games. I was really very clear. I was, I'm very comfortable with, uh, kind of the arc of my career, the time, the, the accomplishments of it. I was very comfortable and really ready to move on, um, from that. As for Ryan, he achieved more than he ever could have dreamed of as that wide eyed 22 year old kid getting on a plane to Colorado Springs. And as you heard him say, his team handball career ended with a feeling of peace, a feeling of things being wrapped up in that way you can only hope after giving an experience all you've got. And the end came not just with a settled feeling, but with logic. He weighed the investment and the return, looking at where he was in his life. And being a father, a husband, job opportunities on the horizon, the next chapter was looking to be an exciting one, a fulfilling one. All those important, I'm going to transition from one thing in my life to the next elements, lined up like you'd want them to. And still, leaving Team Handball was... Very hard. And I've even shared this with the U.S. Olympic Committee. They work on the transition of athletes back into, you know, life, the real world. Just going to annoyingly interrupt here to plug the run-along episode on Team USA's transition out of sport program, where I talk to... Ace coach Terrace Tiller about all they do to support athletes in retirement. That show is called Tell Us. You know, there is life after sport, and how do you transition? And it's hard. You know, you know your value with your team, with yourself, your purpose, you know, what you're ultimately trying to get out of your training. You know, very goal driven, and, you know, every day had a, a purpose. And uh, when it was all done, and uh, I remember trying to find my way to a gym. Uh, sitting there on a bench and saying to myself, why? And, um, and I left and um, didn't go back for months. I just uh, was depressed. It was uh, really difficult to, you know, be so intense and committed to a sport for so many years. I mean, every hour of every day, I was focused while I was on that U.S. national team and ultimately the Olympic team. And it wasn't until I said, you know, that I was done and going to pursue my, the next phase of my, my, my career and my life that um, all this started to hit me. And uh, I 
wish I would have had the, you know, the fortitude to, you know, think about life after sport. Um, I had my degree, but as much as you have value on the court and with your teammates, now stepping into the uh, role as a, of an employee for a company, you don't know where your value is right yet. And mm. you know, people tell you, oh, you'll be great. They'll love you. But, you know, you didn't. And I didn't love myself. I didn't know how to. I didn't know how to apply my skills to wherever I was working. And it was it was tough. It was uh, it was a, it was a depressing time. And um, then finally found my my, my purpose uh, working uh, with kids and developing them. And uh, that was very rewarding. And then ultimately when I had my own and now she's in ninth grade and hmm. trying to impart all of my experience mentally, physically, preparation, um, you know, what you can control, what you can't control, um, desired outcomes. I, I love passing that knowledge on and I've, um, and it's worked well for me. Uh, it, I, I find myself referring to, you know, the aspect of team and leadership, um, you know, that I learned through sport and how much it applies to uh, my everyday life and also uh, through my employment. Both Swisshelm and Ryan found that a healthy, manageable way of transitioning out of their sport as an elite competitor meant not leaving altogether. I said these sports were tight-knit communities, and I, they suck you in. I am still involved in the sport. I mean, you can't... That is, I think, the healthiest way to <laughs> to leave a sport. Um, and in particular, when you think about, you know, decades worth of experiences and, uh, you know, all the hours spent, how you can put that into your the next phase. Um, for me, that was staying involved in curling directly. Swisshelm also works as a broadcaster and a coach. After the Olympics in 96, Ryan worked with USA Team Handball in helping to develop the sport at the middle school, high school, and collegiate level. And though it's not like Team Handball or curling will be taking over the main ESPN channels anytime soon, we are in a moment in our world that threatens to crush the smaller and marginal. Shining the light on the value of the smaller and marginal, what these pursuits have to offer, seems more important now than ever. I really recommend it for, you know, kind of all abilities and all, like, ages can try it. And it's a lifetime sport. And it really is social. It is really fun. Um, you can have individual successes and you know, team successes. Um, and it's just a really supportive environment generally in which to do it. Uh, there's a lot of people around the country that love it. They want, uh, good things to happen with it. Uh, I think we can add uh, some resources that can maybe elevate our, our discussions to truly uh, take this sport to, uh, the next level. Uh, but we, we, uh, we, we do have a lot of passionate, uh, folks that, um, would love to see this one day uh, take off. And and I'm still a believer there and would love to see it as well. And uh, I'll be there cheering on whoever's taking the court, much like many people cheered me on back in 1996. And to finish off the show, I'll go back to how it started. That scenario I was envisioning where you're in a social situation and you come to that moment where you're bringing up your sport, your former athlete status. Any retiree knows it all too well. The feelings of pride or self-consciousness when the words exit your mouth. 
the uncertainty of how the words will land on the ears of the person you're speaking to. Will it bring them joy, a sense of connection, or total apathy? Will it bring a flurry of questions you hate fielding? Do you even care what it brings? Well, what's that actually like when you're in a non-traditional sport? How soon in the conversation would you say, I was a former Olympic handball player? How, how quickly would that come up? And what's the usual response to that? Regarding you know, former Olympic, I mean, once an Olympian, always an Olympian. Okay. That is what was uh, ingrained in our heads when uh, we were uh, on the circuit. How soon in the conversation does I'm a former Olympic curler come up? Oh. <laughs> in terms of the uh, conversations, there's generally something that will come up with team and you know training and uh and i will reference you know and there was just so much gained life skills that you know through my interaction with my teammates and my coaches and i will reference them in conversation because it's relative not to i'm you know because i'm looking for um hey a pat on the back but i'll just you know find myself say oh yeah one of my teammates was you know a, a a tennis player at a division one <laughs> program or one of my teammates right. was captain for, you know, North Carolina, you know, tight end football and like teammate, what teammate? Oh, well, you know, it was, uh, you know, I was an Olympic athlete in 96 and, uh, wait, wait, wait tell me about that. And, uh, so I, I, I kind of find myself stumbling into it a little bit more and, you know, but there's also a number of people that, uh, have known me for years and, uh, didn't find out all that time that I was an Olympic athlete. So maybe I need to, better tell my story. Uh, I remember one of my neighbor's dads uh, coming up to me and been living next to them for you know, 12, 15 years. And he said, I learned something about you today. You were an Olympic athlete. I said, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You never told me. I'm like, oh. And so I could hear my mom on my other shoulder, you know, in my ear saying, you know, you need to, you need to tell people about what you do. <laughs> well, you know, if someone asks you what you do for a living, that's when it gets, that's when it opens the can kind of opens right and the and the funny snakes jump out um because I have such an odd response I say I work in sports and then oh what and I say the sport of curling and now the response kind of universally is oh my gosh I love curling uh from almost like that's a great sport where you do the you know and they always make the crazy sweeping motion which I know that's what we kind of look like but, um, you know, I go, yeah, that's it. And then you get almost always, well, I'd say now it's like seven out of 10 times you're going to get the, are you a, a sweeper or a thrower? Yeah, that's what my, um, that's pretty much what my dad asked when I told him that I was going to be doing this area. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's really a standard. I mean, that is pretty much the first question most of us will get. Um, and, uh, you know, everybody does both is the answer and then um uh yeah from there telling people that i do uh coaching and broadcasting in our sport um it becomes a pretty interesting kind of topic there's not many people who have that as a job in the united states or even the world so um yeah i try not to have it come up too early in a conversation because people really want to talk about it for like that's it I guess when you've dedicated a good portion of your life to an activity most people don't know much about, you get pretty good at knowing how to leave your ego out the door, fighting for the little guys, 
working relentlessly, no matter the resources at hand or the eyes involved, and knowing the perfect blurb to navigate all kinds of small talk. Thank you to Anne Swisshelm and Matthew Ryan for coming on to the podcast, and thank you for listening. Hope to see you next time.